0: Praise the Lord. We're continuing our lesson through the Gospel of Mark. <coughs> Last week, we ended with Jesus having been exhausted by ministering to the crowds. His mom and family came to help him, thinking that he was too tired to think straight, and they really wanted to get him out and, and help him. Then Jesus answered the question of whether he was healing under God's power or under the devil's power. He confronts that question with a simple logic but then goes on to tell them about what we call the unpardonable sin and we explained that last week. So now we come to the next part in Mark 3 but before we do that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we're able to study your word and I pray that as we go into your word that your Holy Spirit gives us truth. Help, it, help us to rightly divide your truth and allow your word to really minister to us. Let it be applicable to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 3, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. So Mark turns the conversation away from the unpardonable sin back to Jesus' family. They knew that he was preaching inside, but they weren't willing to wait until he was there. Instead of going in themselves, now that, if you know, the Jesus brothers didn't really believe in Jesus until after he died. So at this point, they didn't believe that he said that he was the Messiah. So rather than going in themselves, they sent someone else in to get him out. It doesn't say why they did it. <coughs> any, spe- any answer or any explanation would be speculative. speculative, so we won't speculate on that. But the bottom line is the family thought they knew what was best for him. and they they thought that interrupting him and stopping him was doing what was best for Jesus. I mean, sometimes our family, in their attempt to really do what they think is best for us, keeps us maybe from what God has for us. Maybe they misunderstand our commitment to the Lord or our reasoning behind that. And they may feel, and they honestly may feel they know what is best for us. But they don't understand our choices, our ministries, the things that we do. But like Jesus, we shouldn't let that deter us from what God is calling us to do. Now, let me make one caveat here before we go on. The Bible still tells us to honor your father and mother, right? That didn't stop. The Bible never tells you to stop contact with your family after you become a Christian. Instead, it tells us to live among them and witness to them and love them and let them see Jesus in you, interacting not just in church, but let them see what God is changing in your life. We don't exclude non-believing family members from our life. We're We're to love them and encourage them, and we love them as our family and we want them to see Jesus. Cults, however, will invariably tell people to cut off all ties from unbelieving family, friends, whatever. Why? Because they're afraid that their members will get drawn away to the truth, possibly, and so they shelter them, (coughs) and they might leave the grasp of the person that's leading the group. Christians should be confident and knowledgeable enough to live the Christian life anywhere. We shouldn't, be fear, we shouldn't fear being talked out of what we believe. Yeah, this is going to be irritating. This church will never tell you to stay away from your family unless they're actually dangerous to you. We're to love them the way Jesus loves them. And how, I mean, the Bible says, how are they going to know unless someone tells them? That someone is going to be us. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. How is your family and your friends and all that going to know about Jesus unless you tell them? 1 Peter 3.15, this is my life verse. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. If someone were to question you, and ask you a question about your faith could you answer them it doesn't mean we know everything can you give them the basics if someone says, say why do you believe this could you tell them why you believe it it's more important that you understand what you believe for yourself so no one talks you out of what you believe mark three thirty-three says who are my brother and my mother my mother and my brothers And he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and sister, or my brother and sister and mother. At this point, we know his brothers weren't believers. And it appears that his mom wasn't really sure yet. Jesus followed the Ten Commandments, so he would not dishonor his folks by this statement, but he was saying that out of our relationship to him, holds the same honor that we give to the Lord. God should always come first over family. It doesn't mean we dishonor them. It doesn't mean we look down on them. But push comes to shove. You have a decision to make. God always comes first. Not what I say, what God's word says. (coughs) The phrasing that he's using indicates that he was probably looking at the 12 when he said that. He said, Then he looked at those seating in the middle. There's a whole crowd of people, but he's looking at the ones in the middle, which is probably the 12. But he wasn't saying that only about the 12. Because in verse 35 it says, whoever does God's will is my mother, or my brother and sister and mother. One commentary says it this way. It can easily be imagined what this statement meant to the original readers of Mark's gospel. In place of broken family relations, ostracism, and persecution... Was the, close, was the close and intimate relation to the Son of God. A lot of these folks were suffering persecution from their family. A lot of them were ostracized by their family. A lot of them had horrible upbringings by their family. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm, you are now part of my family. You don't have to do what your family at that point, particular point did. And no matter what your family relationships are like, you can have an intimate relationship with your heavenly father. Hallelujah. We get our view of God by what our earthly fathers are like, good or bad. <coughs> we all have an image of what a good dad would be, kind of a leave it, to the, leave it to beaver kind of dad, you know? Whether or not we had that, we know what it was like, we know what it would be like. You can have closeness with God that you may or may not have even have with your dad. Now, you know, my, my dad, we were close. But he wasn't a Christian. And it, you know, still, you know, pains me today that I don't know if he knew the Lord before he died. But my dad, if, if you're that generation, World War II, he was kind of a disciplinarian. <laughs> and... That's a lot of times how I think God is sometimes as a disciplinarian, when he's not necessarily that way. You get your view of God because of how your earthly father is. But the Bible is saying here, it doesn't have to be that way. Regardless of who your dad is or was, God is not that way. God is infinitely better. Think of the perfect dad that you would like to have. That's who God is. He loves you and He cares for you. Again, going back to what we sang at the beginning, man, God loves you first and foremost. And everything that comes after that is because of His love for you. And as a parent, the things you do for your kids, you do because you love them. Now, they may not think so at the time. And more likely, the older they get, the less they're going to like it. But you do it because you love them. And when they get... In their 20s, I think they're going to understand. One of my daughters bought a plaque for Anna it says, I get it now, Mom, thanks. So they understand when they get older. We can have that kind of relationship with our Heavenly Father. And our relationship with the Lord is closer than blood ties. You can have a better relationship with people in church sometimes and you can with your family. It's not that you don't want it, but perhaps they don't, they don't want it. My parents, we never got to talk about church at all. My, in fact, we would go to my parents' house for dinner, and my dad would start questioning me, and my mom would kick him under the table. Because he was always asking me these antagonistic questions, and she would kick him under the table and stop. So we never got to talk about it. And when, I, when we moved to Florida... I moved down a few months before Anna did. And so I stayed with my folks when we were down there. And the first thing I had to do was find a church because I wanted to have fellowship with other Christians. And sometimes you have better relationships with other Christians than you do with your parents, unfortunately. And it's not because you don't want it, it's because they don't really want to talk about it. But you can have that relationship with your Heavenly Father Mark 4, verse 1 says, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. So now we're a different chapter, but we're continuing on the same story. Now the word again here doesn't tell us that it was right after the previous events or if some time had lapsed between. It doesn't really specify. It's simply saying at some point in this discourse, Jesus began teaching. This is one of the few times in Mark that he records what Jesus taught because we mentioned earlier that This is written to the Roman Gentiles, Roman believers. And they wanted to hear more about what Jesus did than what he said. So you have a lot more miracles taking place. But you do have a few teachings, and this is one of them. But here in chapter 4, we see four different parables. And these are all grouped together because they're all similar. They may have been at different points in time, but they're all together as a group. And a parable is simply defined as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning but usually there are much more than that. Parables are sometimes stories taken from real life to drive home a spiritual point or a moral truth. Sometimes they're allegorical, sometimes they're comparative, or sometimes they're even a proverbial saying. Jesus uses these things to teach his disciples. Now, verse one goes on. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into the boat and set it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. Again, Jesus had to get away from the crowds a little bit before he could actually teach them. If he stayed on the shore, they might have crushed him or might have pushed him into the water. So he gets in a boat, kind of like a pulpit, on the water. And so, <coughs> again, maybe for self-protection, maybe for a way of escape if the crowds got too rowdy, he was able to use that boat as a lectern or a pulpit. It also shows his popularity among the people. Verse 2, he taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said this. Again, using parables, he was able to connect with them on a logical or emotional or sometimes both level. Now, how many have ever heard the phrase emotional word picture? I think Kevin Lehman coined that phrase a couple years ago. An emotional word picture is when you bring something, and you get someone's emotion involved in the story, and then at the end of the story, you reveal to them a truth that you want them to understand. The perfect example of that is Nathan and David. Nathan comes in, you know, he kind of, David had sinned with Bathsheba, and he killed Uriah, and a year had gone by, and Nathan goes in and says, let me tell you a story, Dave. He tells this story about this one guy had all these sheep, and there's one a little family that had one little sheep that they loved, this sheep, and they slept with the sheep, and they ate with the sheep. It was part of the family. And he says, and, and this rich guy took that one sheep and killed him. What, would you, what do you think about that, Dave? And he just blasts him. That's you, Dave. You're the guy. You're the guy who stole that sheep. That's an emotional word picture. You get the person emotionally involved in the story, and then you hit him with what you're trying to tell them, the truth that's exactly what parables do. You get them involved in the story. They they want to understand it, and they they really glean onto it, and then you hit them with the truth so they understand what you're trying to say. Mark 4, 3. Listen. Basically, he's saying, okay, stop talking, listen to me. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow. The soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they, they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up and grew and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60 or even 100 times. Now he's talking to people that are probably farmers. And they knew what he was talking about. He was kind of, a, again, he's getting into their, what they understand. And during that time, they didn't have, you know, tractors and all that kind of stuff. So they went out basically and they were just throwing seed. That's how they planted They threw seed. And as, as he's telling them this, they understand that, oh yeah, some of the seed I threw landed on rocks. Some of it landed over here. Some of it landed there. Some of it landed good, but I, I scattered it. So they understood exactly what he's meaning by that. And he starts, again, by saying, listen. It's like someone saying to you, are you listening to me? Or after saying something, they don't get it. And then you ask them, were you listening to me? Did you listen to what I was saying? Jesus wanted to make sure that they were paying 100% attention to him and understanding what he was trying to say. And he was telling this to the large crowds that most of them, and he knew that most of them wouldn't be following him anytime soon. They asked Billy Graham once, what do you think about when you see all these people flooding the altars, coming to get saved? He says, well, I think that three-fourths of them won't be serving God in a year. Why? Because of this parable. Only one-fourth of the seed fell on good soil that was able to take root. And in the story, he's saying that some of you who are listening have hard hearts. (coughs) Some of you have shallow hearts. Some of you have a crowded heart. And a few of you have good hearts. So Jesus starts preaching. He's telling this parable. He knows, and he's under no illusion that all these people are going to be following him because three-fourths of them won't be around in very little time. And again, we realize that they're only after the miracles anyways. And this applies to anyone who hears the gospel. Everyone has one of these types of hearts when you hear God's word being preached. And he ends the parable with the same charge. Verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, are you really paying attention to what I'm saying? You ever talk to your, your small child and you're telling them something and you know that glazed look on their face, they have no, no idea what you're saying to them. He's wanting to make sure that these guys, whoever he's talking to, understands what he's saying, that they're really paying attention to it. Verse 10 says, and when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. So they were listening, but they really didn't get it yet. And notice who was there. It was the 12 apostles and others, all those who were here. So his teaching is not only for the 12, but it's for anyone who wants to follow the Lord, anyone who hears the gospel. And they asked him about parables in general, not just that parable, because Verse 2, go back to verse 2. It says, he taught them many things by parables. So they're asking him, how do you interpret all these parables that you're saying? And verse 11 says, he replied, you were permitted to understand the secret about the kingdom of God, but I'm using these stories to conceal everything about it from outsiders (coughs) so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. They see what I do, but they don't perceive its meaning. They hear my words, but they don't understand. So they will not turn from their sins and be forgiven. One commentary says, these verses are some of the most difficult in the entire gospel. The secret of the kingdom is given to those folks because they have responded in faith. The secret's proclaimed to everybody. Everyone hears the gospel. Everyone who, at least in this group and everyone in the world, has heard the gospel at most, at least in America. But not everyone has the faith to understand the gospel. I remember when, before I was a Christian, I didn't understand anything about Christianity. A friend of mine gave me a Bible when I was in college. I started reading it, and I read about five, five pages, and I closed it. I had no idea what I was reading. Didn't understand anything about it. But the moment I got saved, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. Ah, I get it. I, I don't understand everything, but I get it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's now living in you and allows you to understand what the Bible says. It's not the preacher that does it. It's not the church that does it. It's the Holy Spirit that fills you, that gives you the understanding. So if you think you're going to understand it before you come to faith, it's not going to happen. You have to accept Christ, and then you're going to get it, and then you're going to understand. And until you step out in faith to believe you won't have the ability to understand God's word. Verse 12 says, They hear my words, but they don't understand. So they will not turn from their sins and be forgiven. That's that's why I sat in church for three years. Nothing resonated. I heard the gospel over and over and over again. But it was like the old peanuts cartoon. Wah, 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 wah. That's all I heard. But once I exercised faith and trusted in Christ, it's like a translator turned on. And if I never did that, I would never have had my sins forgiven because I didn't think that I needed it. It's not that God keeps you blind. It's your own heart and your own lack of faith that keeps you from understanding. You don't want to understand. How many have heard the phrase, if all else fails, read the instructions? Anybody shop at Ikea? You buy this furniture, it's all disassembled, and they got this big instruction book. Have you ever tried to put it together without the instruction book? Well, I've tried, failed. Get halfway done and realize, I should have put this bolt in very first thing. So now I've got to take it all apart and put that one bolt in. God's given you the instruction book. But if you're not going to read it, you're not going to apply it to your life, you're not going to get what God's trying to say to you. And it's like refusing to read them. Now, oh, I've done this. I'm going to conquer this without those instructions. I'm gonna, I don't need them. I'm going to do it. And maybe I get it right, but most times I don't. Or you look at the instructions and say, you know what, they're not right. Those instructions are not right. I'm going to do what I think is best. So guess what? Your desk isn't assembled right, not because the instructions are wrong. It's because you didn't bother to read them. Verse 13 says, but if you can't understand this story, how will you understand all the others I'm going to tell so we have a kind of a slight rebuke here. I said, guys, aren't you listening? This one's pretty easy. But I'm going to explain it to you. In this parable, I think more than all the others, are, seems pretty clear. Even if they don't show you what it means in the Bible, you kind of get an idea of what it means. And this is an easy one. How are they going to get the harder ones if they don't get it? One commentary says this. The blindness of men is so universal that even the disciples are not exempt from it. I mean, you've read something in God's word and just had no clue what it was until God reveals it to you. So now we're going to look at the meaning of the parable and each type of heart that he's talking about. When you hear the word, it's going to be one of four different types of re- uh, responses to it. Verse 14 says, the farmer I talked about is the one who brings God's message to others. So maybe a friend, maybe a preacher, maybe something you hear online. The seed that fell on the hard path represents those who hear the message. But then Satan comes at once and takes it away from them. The rocky soil represents those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But like young plants in such soil, their roots don't go very deep. At first they get along fine, but but they wilt as soon as they have problems or are persecuted because they believe the word. The thorny ground represents those who hear and accept the good news. But all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares of this life, the lure of wealth and desire of nice things. So no crop is produced. But the good soil represents those who hear and accept God's message and produce a harvest, a huge harvest, 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted. The first thing we see is that any life transformation, any spiritual growth depends on how you receive God's word. Not only for salvation, but this is for your entire walk. I know there are people that say, you know what? I don't don't particularly like that verse in the Bible. Sorry. (laughs) It's true. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's not true. So if you hear some sermon at some point that you don't, you know, I don't like that. Sorry, I didn't write it. So it depends on how you receive God's word. If you think that you don't, I don't particularly agree with that or I don't like it, so it must not be true. It depends, your growth depends on how you receive God's word. Now, the farmer is anyone who shares the gospel. He casts a seed over the ground, he throws that seed out, throws the gospel out, Billy Graham preaches, and thousands of people hear it. You have the first group, the hard hearts. Verse 15, the seed that fell on a hard path represents those who hear the message, but then Satan comes at once and takes it from their hearts. Hard heart. This can come from listening to all kinds of pseudo-spiritual people and influences and getting a hard heart about anything spiritual. Maybe they had a bad encounter with some religious person or a bad encounter with a church or whatever. You know, we talked about the unpardonable sin last week. If God hadn't gotten my attention, I think that would be me. I'd heard it so many times, I just got hard to it. I didn't want to hear it anymore. Maybe they don't understand the message. And during the time that the enemy comes and takes it away, before it has time to resonate in their spirit. They hear it, they don't quite get it, and all of a sudden the enemy takes it away. So they don't have time to think about it. Their hearts are hard. They don't want to receive what God has for them. The second one is a rocky heart or a shallow heart. Verse 16 says, The rocky soil represents those who hear the message, receive it with joy, but like young plants in such soil, the roots don't go very deep. At first they get along fine, but they will wilt as soon as they have problems or are persecuted because they believe the word. These folks hear the gospel they're in, they love it, they believe, they turn to Christ, they're excited about this new life. But they don't seem to grow in their knowledge or relationship. They're staying at the beginning. So when the hardships of life or persecution happens, they, they can't stand. They don't have the depth. You know, you've all heard the analogy of a, a tree. Storms, the harder the winds push against the tree, the deeper the roots go. So a tree that's tall has been through a lot of storms, has deep roots. Now, as opposed to evergreen trees, how many have seen an evergreen tree The roots go this way? The big wind, man, it, it falls right over. That's what God's talking about in these words. You receive it, but your roots don't go very deep. The first time a wind comes, it's going to knock you down, and you're going to walk away because it's not turning out the way you think it should. Hardships in life are meant to deepen your roots in God's word. When your kids are in school, they don't stay in second grade forever, hopefully. You push them to the next harder grade, and then the next harder grade. You always put things in front of them that that are harder than they've done before. Why? Why do you do that? Because you want them to grow and mature. If they stayed in second grade their entire life, they would know nothing. But you push them, and you call them to do things that are difficult for them, in order to make them ready for adulthood. God allows hardships so that we deepen our roots in God's Word. When things go tough, what happens? We start digging into God's Word. Life doesn't go the way you want. You dig into God's Word. And the more you dig in, the more that God shows you what's going on, the deeper your roots go, so the next time when the storm comes, it's not so bad. And we heard it in Sunday school today. Judy's going through some situations right now but she's, she's got joy and peace not because of the situation but because she's seen God work in the past roots go deep and that situation is not toppling her that's what God wants for each one of us Now, the group that Jesus is talking to, they're like the evergreen trees. These guys are going to topple when the first first problems or the first persecution comes. The Fire Bible commentary says this, these half-hearted spiritual commitments can result from the following. The church demonstrating a degree of irresponsibility by failing to communicate Christ's message thoroughly. Making a commitment to Christ seems overly easy or neglecting to emphasize the cost of following Christ. Not easy being a Christian. Anybody got a perfect life? God doesn't promise a perfect life. God promises to be with you in every situation in your life. That's what counts. That God walks with you through it. Following Christ is a blessing and a joy, but by no means does it mean that every problem you face will disappear. There's a cost to being a Christian but the benefits outweigh the cost. Now we come to the thorny or the crowded heart. Verse 18, The thorny ground represents those who hear and accept the good news, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares of this life, the lure of wealth and desire for nice things, so no crop is produced. Similar situation, different catalysts, different things causing you to make the choice. People hear the good news, they repent, they ask for forgiveness, but they continue living the life they've always lived in pursuit of what they've always wanted. Normal everyday things begin to crowd out their commitment. Now, I think especially in America, everyone's desire is to have more and nicer things. Nothing wrong with that unless it becomes more important to you than God. The examples are you know what I'll work longer hours and I'll miss church to work overtime I don't have to but I'm going to because I want this I want nicer things Or I'm too tired from working to have any kind of devotional life And my only day off is Sunday so I am not going to church on Sunday my only day off We have kids that need to be in every sport so we'll miss church because it's all about the family. I'm not saying sports are bad. But when there's a choice in those situations, God always seems to come second. And because for this group, in their pursuit of things that they want, rather than what God wants for their life, no crop is produced. They have no effect on the lives of anyone they know. They're Christians. But you never know it by the way they live. Because they're always wanting more and bigger and better things, and they sacrifice the things of God to get the things that they want. Nobody is drawn to the Lord because of their testimony, because they don't have one. These last two types demonstrate the desire for the benefits and forgiveness and salvation, but they don't actively entrust their lives to the Lord. They want the blessings. They don't want what it costs to be a Christian. Their faith is based on what awesome sermon they hear or what personality preacher they listen to more than on what they receive from the Lord. Listening to sermons is good. I listen to them as much as I can during the week. But it does not take the place of studying it for yourself. You can listen to them as an add-on. But you should personally study to know what you know. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman doesn't need to be ashamed who rightly divides God's word. That should be us. And lastly, we have the good heart, Mark 4.20. But the good soil represents those who hear and accept God's message and produce a huge harvest 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted. This is the true committed believer they produce fruit every believer should have some evidence of spiritual fruit in their lives now you talked about in Sunday school today the old man anger and sin not speak half as much as you listen do people to other people see a difference in your character as you grow old in the Lord? Are you different than you were five years ago? There should be maturity, there should be signs of growth, there should be spiritual fruit that people see. Now these things, these signs will be different for every person, but every person should exhibit some kind of growth and maturity. Each of the first three hearts has a different enemy. The hard heart, the devil himself snatches the seed. The shallow heart, well, that's the flesh, what the flesh wants. Hardship and persecution starts, the flesh wants an easy way out so they fade away. The crowded heart, that's the world. All the desires the world tells you you should have comes before what God has for you. I'm going to ask the worship team if they're here to come on up. So the question is, what kind of soil or heart does God find in you or in me? Do we ignore God's Word? You hear it, but you don't want to hear it, so you just forget it. That's the first soil. Do you faint at the first sign of hardship? Do you quit God when something better seems to come along? Or do we want to have God's Word make us into who He knows we can be. And the last thing I wrote down here is basically the first thing that we said at the beginning of the service. Are you thirsty for God, His Word? That's the only thing that can satisfy. That's the only thing that is solid. The world is transient. This doesn't change. Our relationship to God doesn't change other than it grows better and better but it's all based on this word and i've asked the team to play our closing song before all who are thirsty let me read the lyrics of that before they sing it all who are thirsty well hopefully that's all of us we should never get to the point where we no longer want god's word we should be thirsty for it all who are weak Maybe you don't have a tight relationship with the Lord yet, or any relationship with the Lord. The Bible says, come all. If you're thirsty for what God has for you, if you're weak, you don't know much about God, come to the fountain. Dip your heart in the stream of life. I love this verse. Let the pain and the sorrow be washed away. How? How? in the waves of God's mercy. That's what we want. Would you stand? And as they sing, I'm going to ask you to come down and we're going to pray that God fills us with His, the water of life. Lord bless you. God's word says, He will in no wise cast out those who come. So, Father, we are gathered up front, seeking you, seeking you to fill us with the water of your word. That you wash us clean with your word. Let your word permeate every aspect, every decision, every bit of wisdom we have. Let it be your wisdom, Lord allow our lives to be a reflection of what you have already done in our life. We thank you that we can call you our dad. We thank you, Lord, that you chose us and you want us to be filled more than we want to be filled. In this church, we are hungry for you. We are thirsty for the things of God. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit. Fill this place with your anointing. Lord, as your kids, we come to you and we just cry out, Dad, fill me. Feed me, Lord. The word says, if an earthly dad gives food to his hungry children, how much more will a Heavenly Father give us the Holy Spirit when we ask? So, Father, we're asking. Fill us, Lord, with your anointing. Fill us. Revive us, Lord. Revive me. Revive each person here, Lord. Let revival come to this area. Let many people come to know you, Jesus, because of what you are doing. We believe and we trust for revival, but we need the sovereign move of God to do that. So, Father, move in our midst, move in our lives. Allow our life to be different than it is now allow it to be what you want it to be and what you know we can be. Just like a parent knows the potential in their child, Lord, you know what we can be in you. So fill us with that wisdom. Fill us with that anointing. Fill us with your spirit. Allow us to be controlled by what your word tells us. Let us live our lives to honor you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Jesus. That you love us. More than anything else, Father. You love us. All we can do is say thank you, Lord. We don't deserve that love. We don't earn it. You love us because you're our dad. Lord, let our lives just reflect our gratitude. We can't do anything to make you love us anymore. So Lord, just let us appreciate all you've done for us. And we know we have eternal life. We know that the creator of the universe cares about me. says, who is man that thou art mindful? Who am I that you care about me? Out of the eight billion people that are alive today, why do you care about me? But Lord, I'm so glad that you do. Help us to live with that attitude all the time. Not all the rules we think about, but the freedom we have in Jesus and knowing that God cares about me. Lord, I ask you to bless each person as we leave today. That the Holy Spirit encourage them throughout the week and allow them to see their lives being changed by what you're doing in and through them. So, Father, we ask you to revive us every day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night, next Sunday.